Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I am delighted to be here. I am I'm delighted to be here every single episode and, and always surprised that we're moving forward. This is episode seven of season two. AKA 207. Yes, it's chapter seven of the bullet catch. For those of you who are listening to the uh, book, I don't have any idea actually who listens to just the interviews, who listens to just the chapters. I don't know how many people listen to us. And I've been asked by like professional people, because sometimes I'm on other podcasts or I get emails from people and they say, and what are your downloads? Like, got no idea. And they think, well, their expression seems to be like, you're not very smart for not knowing that, but it it just doesn't matter because in my mind, A, it's fun just, you know, the back and forth with you. And how often do I get to see you? But if there's only one person who's enjoying it, fine. I mean, that's uh, uh, famously, I think Rob Reiner said of his friend Albert Brooks, he stopped doing stand-up because he found that he got as much pleasure uh, out of making one person laugh as he did out of making a thousand people laugh. And it's like, well, then why should I go on the road? I can just make you laugh. So uh, thank you to everyone who is listening. I have no idea how many of you are out there, but we appreciate each and every one of you. And essentially, John, it may just be me that you're entertaining. And that's enough. I'm I'm happy. Uh, and and uh, the rest of it, only you know or care. I'm just thrilled to do what we're doing and talk to the people we're talking to and uh, explore the realm of magic on a level that I have not yet gotten a chance to do in my, um, oh, I don't know, 50 plus years on the planet. Yeah. Well, and we've got a good one today. We you know, really in, uh, for those who are reading the chapters in the bullet catch Eli is getting his uh, first experience uh, as a magic consultant on a movie. He's training his friend, Jake North, how to behave like a magician on screen. So in order to continue that theme, this episode, we have a magician and a magic consultant, John Armstrong, and he's going to be talking about his work on shows like Arrested Development, The Mentalist, and and Shut Eye. I first encountered John uh, in a documentary called Magician's Life in the Impossible, which follows Mm. a handful of magicians over a period of a couple of years. Have you ever had a chance to see that? You know, I have not. And so we're, uh, pretend I'm a listener. Where would I find that? Check your streaming services. Um, give me a, give me the title again. It's a, called Magician's Life in the Impossible. It's a great little documentary. It, it demonstrates just how different magicians can be, just like people in real life. There's no such thing as a standard magician. Mm-hmm. And as I think I said last time, you know, one of the subjects of the film has since gone to jail. Uh, one has died. I watched it specifically because I wanted to know more about John Armstrong. And you really get a sense of his dedication to his craft in the documentary. He's made a lot of changes in his act in his life since then. But he clearly was a magician uh, that I wanted to follow and learn more about because I was, at the time was trying to build who Eli Marks was. And uh, I think they share a lot of uh, uh, personality quirks in uh, in a good in, way, in a very, very good way. Yeah. If, if you have a magic trick, a card trick that Penn Gillette says is the best card trick he's ever seen, that's uh, that should be on your business card. And John certainly could yeah. put that on his business card. He's been on Fool Us, uh, and we're going to hear him talk about Fool Us, I think, as a, a side note, right? Yeah, it wasn't really during to what we we're talking about. And we also talked a long time. Uh, we might still be talking for all I know. So <laughs> rather than break it into two parts, uh, we just do have a bonus video that uh, we'll talk about later that has uh, his, his thoughts on being on Fool Us. And it's charming. But he's... He certainly helps people build a better magician, which is kind of where we are living right now in these um, series of podcasts, right? Exactly, because he is the he has been a magic consultant on uh, many, many projects and uh, knows what goes into it. So in our conversation with him, he kicked it off really nicely by defining exactly what he means when he says he's a magic consultant. So... Where, uh, so anything I consider uh, consulting is when I personally am not the person on camera uh, doing it. And then I'm taking somebody who either is a very inexperienced magician or not a magician at all, normally an actor, and training them to be able to do whatever they have to do for the script that they that has uh, been written. Is is there one example you can give us that's sort of emblematic of what that process is like and and uh, why you like well, it? Well, 
So, I mean, I said there's so many different vari variations. Um, so in some cases, like say when I worked on Shut Eye, uh, I worked, um, I was coming in in the second season. They wanted to, they had revamped, changed the showrunner, changed the writers, the writer's room. They had changed everything. And they really wanted to go in with a much more deeper, realistic view of things. And so when I was contacted and got that job, but I sat in the writer's room and I was there, they would basically just throw things off of me. And I'd be like, well, that one really worked that way. Yeah, let me research that, blah, 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 blah. And so when they were coming up with their, um, their scripts, like I was a part of that. And then um, I would get this, they would send me the scripts to see if it jived. You know, does this work make any sense? Does this make sense magically? Would this actually happen in this world? And I'd be like, yes or no, or whatever. And for the most part, they took my notes. Like it was really amazing how much uh, input I had uh, on that show. Conversely, there's other shows where it was weird. They would hire me and then they say, what, is, this, is this how it works? And, uh, and I'm like, not really. And they're like, okay, we're still doing it this way. Okay, well, why am I here? So they actually had you in the writer's room. That is fascinating. They had me in the writer's room in pre-production. And then, uh, so then the scripts were being written. And then as, as um, I did, a, I did a one day thing where I basically gave them a, like a magic 101. Like we had a whole day where like I took them to the magic castle and I, I, I walked, you know, I walked them through what that world was like. And because shut up, I had a lot to do with like uh, storefront um, palm parlors basically people who do like fortune telling and stuff like that, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, most of that mm -hmm. is a scam. Okay. And so I took them to palm parlors that I, people who I knew who actually work in, in that thing, I took them around and then I basically gave them like a full like lecture on, you know, here's some basic magic vocabulary. We use vanish not only as a noun, but a verb, you know, like all of this stuff. And, you know, if your characters are, uh, someone who, you know, was an actual full-time magician at one time, they would know X, Y, and Z most likely, they would know this reference, so on and so forth. So I did a whole like day like that. And then, then we had other days where I would just come, they would ask me to come into the room and they would just pitch me magic related stuff. And then when the scripts were actually in this, the finished script stage through the showrunner, they would, they would pass them past me and say, does this make sense? And I'd be like, yeah, yes, no, yes, no. And they would ask me what I could, you know, what would do. And then I would be in the production meetings where I'd be, they would like, okay, this is John. He's our magician. I would work with other director that they had brought in to direct that particular episode. And they'd be like, he's a guy who'll be able to like make all that work that's on the page. And then I would demonstrate, I would come in to the director and say, well, here they're doing change raising and change raising is a scam in which you blah, 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 blah distraction. I would literally like show the chain raising to the to the uh to the director okay great how can we film that and then all oh, that's their job not my job but like i would explain all that stuff and they would try to get it so it would actually make sense on camera and um because that was one of the things that they were really trying to go for with the show was to make it look like as real as possible uh in the show and so um and then i would also just have to train the actors to be able to do, because some of the actors were just conmen. Some of the actors were people who uh, who had magic backgrounds. Uh, some of them were grifters. And uh, and so what would end up happening is then I would take the actor and like work with them, you know, a couple hours. Be like, all right, here's what you have to do to be able to do this particular palm switch for these dice. Here's what you need to be able to do for this, this, and this. And then occasionally it would look it wouldn't look right, and then I would have to either a double it myself or get somebody whose hands would match that I knew we could make it work to double it. Right. And fortunately I have enough people um, that I know that we could actually uh, do, you know, female hands, uh, you know, uh, all ethnic hands, so on and so forth that we needed to be able to do that. So that's what I was there. So I was there basically from soup to nuts, uh, not post. I wasn't there from post. Um, but uh, once it was actually being filmed and I was there every single episode and I had a full credit um, in the in, in the credits for that. Conversely, some other shows that I've done where I'd be brought in for the day to train the actor to be able to use, you know, a dove harness or, you know, uh, an appearing cane or something, you know, like that. Do that, be in and out, get paid, and that was it. You know, no credit, no, you know, thing. Other than like when I did Arrested Development, I worked on Arrested Development for the, um, the first season. And when I worked on that show, um, I wasn't actually in the, I wasn't credited in the credits because that was, they were really weird about that because it was a network show. It was Fox at the time. 
and um, but they put me in stuff like I was in the picture uh, of the uh, uh, Magicians Alliance, and so that was yeah. You know, so that so they, there was credit. There was proof that I had actually worked on the show, and uh, and like for the Mentalist, I worked on the Mentalist like from its pilot. I helped the pilot. Um, David Nutter directed the pilot, and Bruno Henning and all those guys who are now much bigger. You know, David Nutter did, does uh, did, did Game of Thrones and. He's, he's a, a master at that stuff. Came all the way to the end. And I worked on that show um, on and off for years, coming in and teaching uh, stuff to uh, to the character, to Simon Baker and uh, things like that. So yeah, and, I, and there's an episode of that show where I actually am in the show, um, where they put me in because just to, you know, hey, this is our little gift to you. And there's, epi- and there's an episode of, the, of, of Shut Eye where I actually have lines, like where I actually interact with the characters. So that's always kind of fun. But yeah, so that's it. Like, it's, so I'm there essentially either to train whatever actor, background actor, whatever, into doing what they need to be able to do to fit the scene. Uh, I usually have very little creative control over what um, is happening as far as the verbiage or what, what needs to happen in the scene. It's like that, that's not my job. My job is just making sure that the actor can be able to pull it off. Our goal is, our goal most of the time is to do it in a way in which the actor is 100% doing it on their own. So there is no reason to do an insert shot because an insert shots look like insert shots. Have you taken anything away from that process as a performer going through the process? Have you learned anything that's helped you? I mean, yeah. The thing about it is, is a lot. What I realized real quickly is that you can take any, you can take an actor and with a small amount of time, turn them into a magician. I'm using the air quotes for the podcast or listeners, a magician uh, for a small amount of time, but you can't do the reverse. Uh, you can't take a magician and try to get them to act. Anytime that I've ever been asked to bring a, act, a, a magician in that can do some sort of specialty thing and then they have to have lines, oh man, that's going to be that's going to be take city. Take three, take seven, take 15, that's going to be take city because that magician is most likely, not all magicians, but the majority of magicians do not have the tr- training, either camera training or online, you know, uh, theater training, whatever, to be able to actually pull off dialogue. Uh, I don't, I don't want to mention names, but I worked on a theme park project um, for a very well-known series of theme parks. I'm sure everybody uh, will be able to figure it out. And I worked on a project and they wanted to bring in this particular magician to do it, but but there was a storyline around the show. So the story, so I did this much magic consulting. I'm holding a small, tiny thing. And I did whole big, gigantic amount of trying to get the guy to learn how to act uh, to the point in which I ended up having to bring in uh, an actual acting coach to be able to get them to where they needed to be able to say, no joke, only about seven lines because it just never came across legitimately because there it's, but a lot of performers, not all performers, but a lot of performers learn their act, do their act. They have their persona. They have their the character in which they perform in, whether it's something that's trumped up or just basically a bigger present, present, presentation of themselves. And that's what they can do. And they know there's they know they they've written they know what they've written they know they can say a lot of performers don't even write down their own scripts they just sort of say what they've always said and just remember the same regurgitate the same lines so having anything outside of that of the line of the stuff that they're comfortable with and having to present their magic but with these lines uh, just totally <laughs> screwed them up but if I would take an actor if I would be able to train an actor to be able to do that act it wouldn't have been a problem. It would have been, we would have been done in uh, half the time, not even half the time, third of the time. So speaking of directing, you mentioned uh, bringing in directors and I know that you've also gotten into directing shows for other magicians, uh, which is, I think is really cool. One of the things we're exploring uh, in this season as Eli teaches uh, his friend to be a magician is the idea of what makes a good magician uh, or a good magic show. Just off the top of your head, what do you think makes a good magician? Uh, what makes a good magician is what di- is different is very different than what makes a magic show. What makes a good magic show? Uh, what makes a good magician uh, in my mind? Because I have a very lofty, maybe even impossible uh, framework of what I think really qualifies somebody as a magician. Most people, not most. This is I'm using generalities when I shouldn't, but a good amount of people 
who say that they are magicians in my mind are not. Um, I would uh, categorize them as I know some tricks. I know how to do a couple things. And that is the difference from somebody who can plunk out twinkle, twinkle, little star and someone who can actually compose and write and uh, music. And that's the difference. The difference is for me, a magician, a good magician is studied, understands how to research um, magic and uh, uh, and also things related to magic, but not necessarily magic, things about like scripting and acting and prop building and so on and so forth. Uh, a good magician uh, understands how to communicate best through the medium, the medium of the, the art of deception, because that's what it really is. It's the uh, magic. In my mind, if you're going to do magic, uh, you have to do something that actually feels impossible, not just, I don't know how this works. I think this is actually in, impossible. There's no way anybody can do that. You need to be able to have that air, which is why a lot of the times in, in the field that I've been working in now the last 10 years, which is comedy magic, like I'm a, I've always been sort of a comedic performer, but I was always a close-up card guy. And then about 10 years ago, I kind of switched over my main sort of focus into being on stage uh, when it comes to my own personal work. And, um, and I discovered, you know, and I, I rediscovered the fact that most comedy magicians are neither, which is not my line at all. It's it's uh, my closest line. But, but that line is so absolutely true that most comedy magicians don't really do very strong magic and they're not really that very funny. You know, because, you know, comparably to an actual stand-up comedian who's been working their entire life on their craft and being able to, to articulate something and be relatable. And then magic, have doing magic, which is, again, stronger, you know, you know actually impactful, emotionally deep. You can make magic not just make people laugh with it. You can make magic where it makes people cry, makes people think, make, you know, I mean, there's great examples of that, Dark Elgadio and so on and so forth, people who really have taken what they're, uh, what they're doing and, and making it into a, a higher form. And I don't think the only higher form means you have to be serious. I think you can do really, really, really great, fun, entertaining magic, but still make it just as important. That's where, uh, to me, I want to do the kind of magic that makes people think. So I think, again, you have to, as a, a real magician, a real magician, uh, whatever that means, but what a real magician would have to actually um, be able to uh, understand their audience, be able to communicate properly with their audience. So that, that goes through the techniques of just voice and diction and so on and so forth, all the way to really being able to emotionally write and put what they're trying to do on the page. And then um, skill, like I don't believe that the only way a magician is a magician um, is that they can do sleight of hand. I don't think sleight of hand is a hundred percent unnecessary component for someone being a, a good magician. Hmm. That said, they need to be able to understand what they're doing to, to accomplish the effect, whatever method they're using to accomplish the effect. So if the method is a box, the box, you push the button and the box works, they need to be able to build that box, fix that box, understand exactly how that box works, get yourself out of the box if it's jammed, but you know, they need to understand it. So it, when you are just a push button magician, I have no uh, I don't believe you have really learned anything. You're not really a real magician in my mind. That said, you don't have to be a sleight of hand magician to be a great magician. I think one of the greatest magicians of all time, Richie Yardy, all the great stage illusionists are, were not exactly huge, amazing sleight of hand performers, but they got the most they could possibly both emotionally and presentationally out of whatever they were presenting. Again, even though it was a, uh, a prop. So that's really what it is to me, um, really caring about it. Um, the, a good part of people get into magic because it's easier than writing jokes. It's easier than acting. It's easier. And that they think that because, again, you can go into a magic shop. It's just as I told you, I, I can take a guy, bring him in, teach them three tricks, and I guarantee you they can walk around that night and do, and do walk around magic and, and get paid for it. So that is very possible. It's to get to someone who actually feels like they are doing something different. They they have uh, an engaging personality. That's a there's a whole lot more there. Right. Um, Still looking at it from the directing point of view, what do you think is the most common mistake that magicians are making while they're performing? The one thing that I would say is writing a script, mm. having a plan, having a plea play outline, a flowchart, uh, notes. Uh, an actual real full script, whatever it is, something where in which when they practice, 
when this person is practicing and rehearsing, which are two different things, when they, when there's practicing and rehearsing, they then have something to go back to. Um, and then when they watch themselves on video, they have then a script to look and then they can actually edit and change based on the reactions they're getting from the crowd. That would be, that would be the, the most essential thing. Because again, I can show you a really good push button trick. And the problem with great push button tricks is that if they're well designed, the person who's doing the push button trick gets the credit. They didn't invent the trick. They're basically just holding the thing. You know, the, the most they did is bought it, right? And so I now get this credit for this thing. Well, wait a minute. All I got to do is hit this switch and I, I look like a genius. Perfect. I'm going to get more of those. And then they people are reacting to the great effect that some other person put their blood, sweat, and tears into creating and put out of the market. And so that's what they're doing. Um, if I can instantly stop all of that by having at least at least the ability to say everyone has to have some sort of script, some sort of forethought and planning to what they're doing before they present it. Magic would already be a hundred times better. You made an analogy once between superheroes and their powers and magicians and what magicians need to learn from superheroes. Can you kind of reiterate that for our audience? In comics, what made Marvel comics so interesting and what uh, such a different player in the market when it came out in the 60s, what Stan really did is that he created characters that were extremely relatable. So everybody, uh, so Spider-Man had all these powers, but then was broke and he couldn't, you know, and he couldn't get the girl and all, you know, like all of these very, you know, it was just a kid. He was a teenager. It was very relatable to people. It was back then when you had basically just Superman, uh, who was all powerful and Batman, who was a millionaire. Those are not necessarily these relatable things about them. My point is they are most likely the characters are defined by their powers. Spider-Man has spider powers. The Flash can run fast. They all have the fine by their powers. So when you are trying to be a, a, a magician who could just do everything, that's very unrelatable. That's Superman unrelatable. But you're thinking, wait a minute, Superman is one of the most popular characters of all time. True, but Superman, Superman is one of the hardest characters to write because he was so powerful. He, it was hard for him to have any kind of bad guys or troubles or anything for him to be able to actually have to do. Kryptonite was invented years later because they ran out of ways to actually do anything for him. His, his vulnerability to magic uh, happened years later. So he was too powerful. And writing a character that, that powerful is very hard to make relatable, which is, again, why the Marvel characters became so incredible incredibly popular. And so I think as a magician, you should be able to be very clear about what you can do, but also what you can't do. And that alone, those mistakes, not sucker tricks were like, oh no, I'm in trouble. And then I pull it out in the end, which are, which are fine, but not what I'm talking about. Being able to actually uh, show that you have difficulty with something, the process behind it, that um, not being able to do everything in magic, like, you know, nothing is more jarring than watching someone do a straightjacket escape and then immediately do mentalism. Like, what is that? You have to prove to me how you have those two powers linked together. Like, that makes no sense to me. Uh, and when I say to me, I mean an audience. An audience member is like, why? I mean, and then because what ends up happening is you become what I like to call, you know, uh, uh, omnipowerful man. Omnipowerful man is the most unrelatable character of all time. And you're just essentially some person who can do some tricks. And if you're just some person that can do some tricks, I don't remember your name at the end of it. I barely remember the tricks you did at the end of it. I don't remember any kind of effect you did because you, there's nothing that strikes to, uh, strikes to me and makes me remember you as a person. My goal in anything that I have ever done on a stage or in close-up or any kind of thing performing has always been to make friends, make them remember who I am and make them want to want to hang out with me. And it was all very much based on the idea of who do you hire? Well, you hire your friends. Right. And I still, to this day, work for clients that met me 20, 30 years ago. And 
they hire me and bring me back to things or whatever, because again, I'm good. You know, I'm hopefully I'm nice to work with and I'm easy to work with and a professional, but they have, think of me as their friend, John, I have my, and, and that's what happens normally is that they don't say, Oh, we use a magician. They go, Oh, our friend, John takes care of this usually. But it sounds to me like what you've done in this process is taking the idea of, I want, I want you to be my friend. I want to be friends with you. And you, you've done the same thing client-wise that, that you, you also do audience-wise, where it's like, it's not, you're not a mass group. You're a bunch of my friends. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's little things, you know, like I point to it. Like, so in the beginning of my show, I come out and I do this, I do this lame gag. It's a very funny gag in my opinion, but a very lame gag. It's a lame magic gag. First thing I do. So their expectations are as low as they could possibly be. And then I hit them over the head with a trick that they do not see coming. What the hell? Boom. So now I've established myself that I can do magic. And the next thing I do is I reintroduce myself and I say, you know, I talk about I'm originally from Orlando, Florida, and I make all these jokes about Orlando and Florida in general and so on and so forth. And I show pictures of me from when I was a kid. So like I have this picture comes up and it's like an old headshot of me. And I say, oh, this is a whole, this is, this is a picture back of me back when I was uh, Harry Potter. And it looks, I mean, the picture looks like Daniel Radcliffe when he was 12. And, you know, and so like they are, I'm getting to know me. Like I'm immediately saying, hey, let's talk about me. Let's talk. And now, now you know who I am. And I have this rule. It's a rule that I use when I direct others. When others, when other performers have asked me about building stand-up shows, I say this rule. And as soon as they Im- implement this rule into their shows, they're like, wow, you're right. This makes all the difference in the world. And the rule is very simple. If I'm doing an hour show for the first 20 minutes, no one comes on that stage except for me. Here's why. The moment I bring another person on stage, I am the second most interesting person on that stage. The audience relates to the person from the audience more than they relate to me, no matter how much, especially if I do it right at the beginning. So now the show becomes about what is this person going to do to the person? They don't really, they just, they don't, literally, their main thought is what is this person who we care about going to do to the other guy? What are they going to do to them? So like immediately is a change of where I am on power and, you know, and and status level, right? If instead I spend the first 20 minutes of my show getting them to like me, getting them to understand where I'm coming from, getting them to see my sense of humor, that I actually am a very good magician, that I can do really strong stuff that they're not going to be able to like instantly uh, go, oh, uh, this is an old trick where you put the thing in his hand. You know, as soon as I've now established myself, then I would bring, I would go out to the audience and say, would you be so kind as to come and join me up here on stage? And now they do. And now they want to see how this guy is going to interact with the person on the stage as opposed to the opposite. Getting the audience to like you is so key to what he does. And I have to say, Jim, having seen you perform as a, uh, an MC host, talent, uh, interactive person with audience members, that seems to be sort of key to your charm is, hey, we're all friends here. You don't really have a separation between you and your audience. You, you uh, are of them. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I've never kind of consciously thought about that uh, the way uh, John Armstrong uh, articulated it. But yes, I, I would say that that I think there's a difference between being an MC or a, a, a host of something and being an actor where you can rest on somebody else's words. If you're hosting something, it requires you to largely be yourself and um, uh, I, I do like to try to find a way early to let people know who I am and what they can expect of me, either for the day or for the few days that we're together, and um, uh, let them get comfortable with me and me with them in a, in a way that I feel is real. I'll tell them a story about my own life. Um, I, I don't have any pictures of me as a kid, but I will often show uh, pictures of my family or my dogs and talk about. Uh, that and I think that that is doing what John is doing uh, or what John talked about, which is I want to build that 
rapport with them right out of the gate. I want to I want to have them and me come to an understanding within the first five minutes that you can relax. I'm going to I'm going to take care of you and and I'm going to relax and, and trust that you're going to take care of me. And it generally works. Not always, but generally. Yeah. Uh, having been um, not always an audience member for those sorts of things, but around, there is a palpable sense in at least some meetings and events environments that uh, as they go on, when you come back on stage, you can feel the audience go, oh, good. This yeah. guy's back. We don't have to listen to another boring speech. That's the, uh, I think that's the beauty of uh, essentially of, of my little uh, niche and um, <laughs> why I enjoy it <laughs> because I um I generally have no content to deliver. I'm simply there uh, as the glue and as the fun, uh, while other people are delivering scads of content. So when I get on stage, it's generally, you're right. Oh, good. Uh, just for a few minutes now, uh, we're going to talk about dogs or uh, Jim's going to do something goofy and we don't have to. So, yeah, it's and that, too, by the time we're halfway through the day, usually when I come on stage, there is a, a, a sense of, oh, 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 this is good. This is better. Um, and, I, and I'm enjoying that always. At some point, uh, we won't do it today. There isn't time. We'll have to explore the idea of why, in fact, you have no pictures of you as a child. But that's a much longer story and, and involves the government and uh, <laughs> switching of, of bodies. And if you ever read Boys in, uh, Boys in Brazil, yeah. it's kind of that. It is a little. No, I, there are pictures of me as a kid. I've just never thought to, to use them. Although... Uh, after listening and interviewing John, I'm doing uh, for the fourth time, I think I'm going up to a resort in northern Minnesota in June to host a show. And it just happens to be the resort that I vacationed at with my mom and dad and family for 50 years. And there are pictures of us. And I thought, oh, that might not be a bad idea. That's an excellent say, idea. Here's to, a picture of me. As create a a, in Photoshop, here. a picture of you as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, it's interesting. What? Interesting. Anyway, the other thing I thought was interesting, and you sort of almost touched on it there, was that idea that it's easier to make an actor look like a magician than it is to make a magician look like an actor. And here you are both of those things. No, no. you know what? He, he, he defined it perfectly. I am not a magician. I'm a guy who knows a few tricks. And, and, and that, I think, once he said it, I was like, oh, that's, that's what I am. I, I'm a guy who knows a few tricks, who took the time to learn five or six things that, that I can use either as an MC or in this show of spooky magic that I do, which is all I really magically, all I really do is this spooky magic thing. So, so and I was like, oh, that's great because I don't have to, I don't have to try to maintain the illusion for anybody that I am a magician. I'm just a guy who knows a few tricks. And I'm really happy with that. When he said that, I, I just, I, I was very happy to hear it because it makes plenty of sense to me. We should get a business card printed up for you that says Jim Cunningham, just a guy who does a few tricks. Just a guy who knows a few tricks, none of them particularly good, but, but knows a few things. Yeah. I also yeah, but- get a big kick out of his um, talking about superheroes. Cause I do, I'm a big fan of those. My son and I, uh, have watched all that there is. So uh, I'm a big fan of that. And the idea of parsing out your particular magic skills and focusing on one thing, whether it's escapes or mentalism or, you know, gambling or whatever, that, rather than sort of, I can do it all. I can get out of a straitjacket and I can read your mind and I can uh, deal out a perfect poker hand. That, that There's it was interesting to me to hear him talk about superheroes and uh, the powers that you could have. As yeah, it's so smart because we've both seen magicians who, who are that sort of uh, a la carte, I can do a little bit of everything. And um, we've also seen magicians who have very clearly defined not only their character, but their skill set. And I think what he said about adding some fallibility really, really makes for a stronger performance. If you have shown them where the guardrails are for you and what you can do and what you can't do, I think they're just going to believe you a whole lot more and get more invested in it as opposed to I can do anything. Yep. Yeah, the, the thing that came to my mind was, have you ever seen the, the Nora Ephron movie, Michael with John Travolta? I have. It, that, I, that is what came to my mind is when, the, you know, do this uh, Archangel Michael, it's not my area. 
What is your air? What is your area? I will admit in my mind that the movie uh, Michael and the movie Phenomenon are the same movie in my head. It's about John Travolta as an angel who gets really, really smart. And in my mind, it's the same movie. And I know it's, it's not. not. Here's the deal. I love Nora Ephron. I, I, uh, she is, God rest her soul, uh, I think one of the most charming writer-directors this country has ever produced. She's, mm-hmm. she, her films I go back to again and again and again as some of my favorites, and, and she's a delight. And so I came to that movie largely because I stumbled on the fact that it was a Nora Ephron movie, and uh, she's great, and it ends happy for the most part. Okay, that's good to know. No spoilers, but that's good to know. Uh, anyway, unlike Phenomenon, which I don't believe does. I don't remember. I just, in my mind, it's the same movie. So anyway, a lot to take away from the John Armstrong interview. In fact, so much that uh, we have another few minutes of him chatting on our YouTube page. It's a little bonus video of him talking about his experience on Penn and Teller Fool Us, in which he did his tiny plunger routine. Uh, I think I also have a link in the show notes to him doing his tiny plunger trick. And as you mentioned earlier, Penn just telling him it's the greatest card trick he's, he's ever seen. And uh, the, what's nice about the fact that there's a bonus video, it proves that I was in fact part of that original interview, even though we talked so long and he was so kind to give us as much time as he did, that uh, a lot of my interactions with him um, were strangely edited out in the, uh, uh, the interview that you listened to just moments ago, folks. But I was there you can hear me laugh in the back. Well, okay. In the in the interest of full transparency, Uh-oh. it was at least half of the interview. You insisted that he was Neil Armstrong, and all you wanted to talk about was the moon landing. <laughs> so all of that had to go. And I don't. It's I just don't read the the uh, the don't. primer that you send me closely enough. Apparently, no. and to John's credit, he was a good sport about it. Um, yeah. It's just when you started badmouthing Buzz Aldrin that uh, he just you know what I'm not I'm not I'm John Armstrong. <laughs> I'm a magician. Then he punched me. Yes, right, right through the video screen. Anyway, check out the show notes to uh, see his fullest performance. We also have a link to the trailer for the show Shut Eye that uh, John was a full-time magic consultant on. And speaking of being a magic consultant, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but thank goodness that uh, on Arrested Development, when they made so much fun of magicians, they actually had a magician in the room helping them make fun of magicians. Yeah. It, uh, one of my favorite shows. Anyway, so we've learned uh, from both Jonathan Levitt and John Armstrong a little bit about being a magic consultant uh, in this upcoming chapter of the Bullet Catch. Eli's really going to uh, dig in and start working as a magic consultant. Before we jump into seven, let me just quickly recap what happened in six. Good idea. He's done with his high school reunion. He has invited his friend Jake to think about coming to the open mic night that they have at the theater next to the magic store. Uh, He has a quick visit from Megan, who he's kind of broken up with, but kind of not. And then all of a sudden, Fred arrives and he questions Eli about Dylan and what happened the night before, which brings us right into chapter seven. Bum, bum, bum. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 7 The sight of a Renaissance village rising up out of the farmlands 20 miles outside of Minneapolis is odd in its own right. Take that artificial environment and layer on a movie crew with their large trailers, enormous lights on wheels, and dozens of crew members in shorts and t-shirts and an overwhelming feeling of temporal dislocation seems a natural response. I'd driven the mile of dirt road that takes you from the highway to the grounds of the festival, traveling over bumpy grasslands you'd think would be smoother, given the thousands who drive and park along these makeshift roads each late summer and early fall. I crested the last hill and saw the festival grounds below me, a tall wooden fence and imposing gate separating the acres of pasture parking from the confined and dusty world of royalty, knights, and ladies-in-waiting. A bored security guard leaning against the main gate used his walkie-talkie to announce my arrival to a squawking voice at the other end. Moments later, a harried production assistant ushered me toward the row of Winnebago motorhomes that lined one of the many dirt streets circling the center jousting ring. 
I'm en route with a visitor for J1. She huffed into the walkie-talkie as we navigated around and between the motorhomes. He's in mid-interview. What's the ETA on his set time? The response was piped directly into her earpiece, so all I experienced was her nodding along with the unheard voice. Temp 4, she finally barked into the walkie-talkie before reattaching it to the hook on her belt. She stopped in front of one of the nicer motorhomes and climbed the three built-in steps, knocking tentatively on the door. Ten minutes, Mr. North, and you've got another visitor. With that, she jumped off the top step and disappeared behind the next trailer, her walkie-talkie back in her hand. Yeah, yeah, I'm on my way, was the last I heard before she was gone. I turned as I heard the motorhome door swing open and was completely surprised by the voice that greeted me. Well, my stars and goddess, if it isn't my favorite sorcerer. The high British voice was unmistakable. I looked up to see Clive Albans, his tall frame scrunched awkwardly in the doorway. He jettisoned himself from the motorhome and danced down the steps, landing in front of me in all his glory. As usual, he was dressed in a fashion all his own, mixing paisley and pinstripes and black and yellow checks with wild abandon. A silk polka-dotted scarf was wrapped around his neck. Before I knew it, he had engulfed me in an effusive bear hug, his cologne lingering like thick, oily smog. Clive was a peripatetic journalist who dressed like Oscar Wilde and spoke like a fey character right out of Gilbert and Sullivan. I had met him the previous fall when he had been writing a freelance newspaper article on psychics and debunkers, but our paths had not crossed again since, and I was surprised to find him still in town. I continue to turn heads with that trick you taught me, he said conspiratorially. The one with the two coins. Scotch and soda, I said, remembering his delight at learning the secret behind that old chestnut. It's a classic, that's for sure. Yes, but I must stop by the shop and pick up something to add to my repertoire, he sighed. I've run out of people to perform for, and I need something new. You understand that need, as a performer, to fill the endless maw that is my adoring audience. Yes, that's the curse of the amateur magician, I agreed. The old saying is, a professional magician does the same six tricks for a different audience every day, while the amateur constantly has to learn new tricks to impress the same six people. Anyway, I continued, stop by the shop and we'll find something new that will shock and awe your audience. Shock and awe, exactly, he said, but small enough to fit in a pocket and nothing too difficult to master. So you want something that is self-working, but packs small and plays large, he nodded. Exactly. You and every other magician on the planet. I'm sure I can find just the right item to help you out. And if I'm not there, Uncle Harry will look after you. If you're not there, I'll come back another day. Your Uncle Harry puts the fear of God in me. And this, coming from a man who has covered three war zones, he added for emphasis. Are you here to see Jake North? And if so, why? Dirt, please, I need the dirt. I'm sorry, Clive, there's no dirt. We went to high school together, is all. Nothing more sinister than that. Ah, well, I have to ask. I'm a modern-day Sisyphus, he continued, twirling where he stood, his head tilted back as he gestured toward an unseen mountain, rolling the large stone that is gossip up the unforgiving, uncaring slope each day, cursed to have it start again at the bottom the next with yet another unyielding stone. He stopped twirling looking lost for a long moment. Well, he finally said, his head appearing to clear, I'm going to hit the craft services table and then see what dirt I can find in the wardrobe tent. Isn't this exciting, he added. One of the great mysteries of our age. Who killed Terry Alexander? Not since Jack the Ripper has the identity of a killer been so wrapped in mystery. He held up a finger for each of the suspects as he breathlessly named them. Was it the angry and greedy manager, the former girlfriend and current onstage assistant, the insanely jealous new girlfriend, the rival magician in the troupe, or 
the sociopathic local drug kingpin. Oh, goodness, it's such a juicy tale, bound to thrill the masses and fill the coffers. I love it. I remembered Harry's assessment that it was a trick gone bad due to the incompetence of the performer. But since that view wasn't meant for public consumption, I kept silent on the issue. It hardly mattered, as Clive had already disappeared down the row of motorhomes, his high-pitched laughter echoing in the aluminum canyon. Ven si quieres la puerta esta abierta. Took me a moment to understand the voice responding to my knock was responding in Spanish. At least, it sounded like that language to my high school Spanish-trained ear. Granted, all that remained from that education was my ability to inquire as to the location of Pepe's house and to comment excitedly about the pen's current location on top of the table. But it did sound like Spanish, and the tone suggested I should come in, so I did. Walking into Jake's motorhome was not unlike walking into a miniature version of our magic shop. Magic posters lined the walls, and every available surface was covered with decks of cards, jumbles of coins, and exotic-looking gizmos and gaffs. Hey, man, que pasa? Jake was stretched out on the couch, but if I hadn't recognized the voice, I'm not so sure I would have recognized him at all. He was in costume as Terry Alexander. His face was pale with exaggerated eye makeup and black lipstick, giving him the look of a feral raccoon. He was dressed all in black, his hair was long, dark, and stringy, and his bare arms were a mosaic of tattoos. He held a script in one hand and a pen in the other. Just doing a quick rewrite of today's scene, he said, finishing with a flourish. Trying to get some heart into this sucker, but it's an uphill battle. Sisyphean, I suggested, thinking back to my conversation with Clive. Herculean, he responded tossing the script on top of the table. And old Mr. Williams said we'd never remember anything from our classics class, he added with a grin. Prove that old fart wrong, or I suppose I should say, Demastro que pedo vejo mal. What's with the Spanish, I asked. That is Spanish, right? Yeah, I'm not going all method or anything, but Terry did learn to speak Spanish toward the end, so I thought I should do the same. Wow, you've learned magic and Spanish? Quite impressive. Yeah, if I could just learn to act, I'd have the hat trick. False modesty? Or a dead keen assessment, depends who you ask. He set the script down and looked up at me expectantly. So you buried the lead. The cops think Trish shot Dylan. You read the papers? Who reads papers? It's all over the internet. So they think she killed him? Well, the detective I talked to didn't come out and say that, but that was the impression I got. Yes, I said. Killed him, or had him killed, something like that. Wow, Jake said. Well, given his behavior, you'd be hard-pressed to blame her. I suppose, I said, but I don't think that would hold up in court. It doesn't look like self-defense. What's it look like? I thought about it. It looks like a mugging gone bad, I offered, but what do I know? Well, at least one positive thing came out of it, he said, stretching and cracking his neck. What's that? At least now she's single. There was a knock at the door, and I heard the strained voice of the production assistant who had guided me to the motorhome. We're ready for you on the set, Mr. North. Gracias. Estoy en mi camino. Jake shouted back as he pushed himself up from the couch, grabbed the script from the table, and headed toward the door. Come on, he said, gesturing toward me. You can experience the magic of movie-making firsthand. Magic might have been an overstatement. Tedium would have been a better word. The next hour was spent shooting and shooting and shooting a shot of Jake walking across a dusty street spotting a Venezuelan street urchin and bending down to perform a small magic trick for him. In my capacity as magic consultant to the star, I was called in immediately to oversee the simple card trick Jake had intended to perform. 
He demonstrated it for me under the watchful eye of the director, a husky twenty-something in a beard, wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt, who grunted along favorably as Jake executed the trick. When it was done, they both turned to me. My facial reaction must have indicated my distaste for the illusion. What's wrong with it? Jake asked as he performed the trick again at double speed. Card tricks don't generally work on kids that young, I said, gesturing to the child actor, who, for all I knew, may have been in his teens, but looked to be no more than five years old. Kids that age don't know cards. They don't know suits, they don't know values, and so changing one into another isn't really all that magical. At film school, they taught us never to say no unless you can follow it up immediately with a yes. The director stood back, waiting for the yes he felt I owed him. I pondered this situation for a moment and then dug into my show bag, which I'd retrieved from the car. After some rummaging, I found what I was looking for, a silk transformation. This is pretty simple, I said, as I began to demonstrate the trick. But it's visual, and it's colorful, and kids love it. I showed them the bright yellow silk, which I stuffed into my closed fist. I gave the fist a quick shake and then pulled the silk out again, but it had now changed to bright red. I concluded the trick by opening the fist, showing it was empty. Nice, the director whispered. Colorful, visual, and I like how it corresponds to where Terry Alexander is at this point in his arc, in the midst of his personal transformation. Yeah, I like it, Jake agreed, rubbing his chin thoughtfully. I just need to figure out the Spanish word for silk. He signaled to a production assistant who scurried over, an English-to-Spanish dictionary in his hands. Clearly, this was a frequent request on the set. No, don't say silk, I said, as Jake began to page through the dictionary. Nobody says silk in real life, so the magician shouldn't either, I continued, parroting words I'd heard from Harry my whole life. How about bandana, Jake asked, as he flipped to the front of the dictionary. That will work, I said, and once he'd found the right words, I set upon the task of teaching him the trick. The trick, like the shot, was very simple. Cross a street, see a kid, perform a quick illusion. Mira esta panuelo amarillo. And then keep moving. To my eye, Jake nailed it on the first take, but I'm not the director. The director needed to see it nearly 30 more times, with no discernible difference in the action I could spot. So they did it again, and again, and again. After every take, the director would get up from in front of a video screen, one of many monitors shielded from the sun under a large open side tent, and amble over to Jake and the young actor for a whispered conversation. He would then stroll back to his chair while another crew person announced, We're back to one, folks, through a bullhorn. As we neared the 30th take, I realized the person next to me was sighing audibly and louder every time the director yelled, Cut! Trying my best not to be obvious, I turned to see a short, dark-haired guy of about 40 dressed in khakis and a black polo shirt. He wore rimless glasses and held a black binder in one hand and a large cardboard coffee cup in the other. He was shaking his head and rolling his eyes, and I was going to ask him if he was okay, but was interrupted by the sound of the director saying, Action! in a stage whisper that was amplified through the bullhorn. Once again, Jake made his way across the street, saw the boy, bent down, and began to perform the silk illusion. Before he was halfway through his question to the boy, he was drowned out by the director's amplified voice yelling, Cut! All action ceased while the director made the long trek across the outdoor set to his two actors for another hushed conference. He's trying to out-Kubrick Kubrick, the man next to me muttered. Excuse me? I said tentatively. Oh, it's these film school shits who think just because Stanley Kubrick shot a hundred takes of every shot, they have to emulate and surpass the master. Unless they leave the actors in tears, they're not getting to the reality of the moment or whatever the hell it is he's looking for. 
he took a sip of the coffee and then immediately spat it out. And to add insult to injury, this frickin' scene, this whole frickin' sequence isn't even in the script. I mean, my script. So you're the writer, I ventured. Depends who you ask, he replied as he tossed the cardboard coffee cup in a nearby trash container like he was tossing a tear gas canister into a building full of terrorists. I'm only the one who came up with the idea. I'm only the one who did six years of research. And I'm only the one who wrote 20 drafts of the screenplay. So yes, in some circles, I would be considered the writer. However, here, he added, I'm the jackass who keeps complaining. I'm not even allowed to stand by the monitor anymore, he continued gesturing across the set to the video monitors the director was studying. Why? Because Herr Kubrick didn't like that I keep sighing and shaking my head. And believe me, it was all I could do to limit myself to sighs and head shakes. A weaker man would have drawn blood, and not my blood, I can assure you. So he's rewriting the script? I asked quietly, remembering the work Jake had been doing in his motorhome and the quick rewrite we had improvised with the silk. Oh, would that he was the only person rewriting the poor pulpy mess that was once my script. I believe everyone in the cast and crew has taken a crack at violating my script, including the director's mother and her dog whisperer. All the remains of my original script are the page numbers, and even those are now in the wrong order. And there's nothing you can do about it? I am less than powerless. The schmuck who pours the dressing on the salad at lunch has more say in this process than the writer. Maybe this is an ignorant question, but then why are you here? He gave me a long, penetrating look. Because when it all goes up in flames, and it will, believe me it will, I want to see it happen. I may not be the one to throw the match on the kerosene-soaked edifice that is this movie, but I'm not going to miss watching the sucker explode. I smiled weakly. I've got to go, I said. Um, stand over there. I backed away, but he didn't seem to notice. He just sat there, shaking his head and sighing. Hey, it's the debunker guy. I didn't recognize the voice, and I couldn't quite place the woman who had approached me although there was definitely something familiar about her. She was tall and rail-thin, with spiked red hair and pale skin. Several tattoos were visible, poking out of the various points from under her black tank top. She clearly saw the look of puzzlement on my face. I did your makeup for that Halloween show last year on public TV. You were the guy who hated the word debunker, right? That was me, I nodded. And you're... Laura. Close. Lauren, she said. Good effort, dude, she added, punching my arm playfully. You're a magician, right? I am, I said. Can you make me disappear from this show? Lauren said in a heavy stage whisper. No, I'm just kidding. She started digging through the pouch that hung on a strap around her waist. But really, can you make me disappear? She laughed and punched my arm again playfully. I could feel a welt starting to form. What is it about this movie that's making everyone so unhappy? I asked quietly. I just talked to the writer. I talked to one of the actors. Even the production assistants seemed cranky and stressed. Some movies just have a stink about them, she said as she adjusted the makeup items in her pouch. And this one has a stench all its own. Everybody's mad and scared and irritable. It's a real drag. It pays good, but it's a real drag. She gestured across the set toward a woman dressed in what we used to call a power suit. The woman was furiously whispering into her cell phone. See the lady with the $200 haircut and the $2,000 suit? She's Donna, the producer. She's pissed at everyone, but mostly... She's pissed at Walter, she said, gesturing toward the director, who was once again seated behind his bank of video monitors. Walter is four days behind schedule, but every time Donna has tried to fire him, he's fired one of the department heads first.
throwing everything into chaos so she can't get rid of him. She then tilted her head in the direction of the writer. Stewart hates Walter, too, because Walter has eviscerated his script, rewriting scenes, adding characters. Stewart told me when they first started meeting on the script, Walter asked him what he thought were the four most important scenes in the movie. Stewart told him, and Walter has since cut all four of them out of the script. All the scenes we've been shooting recently is stuff Walter added, including the cute, cloying kid. It's driving Stuart out of his gourd. That's the impression I got talking to him just now. If you really want the dirt, get a couple of drinks in him. He goes from a trickle to a flash flood in nothing flat. And if it's fireworks you're after, get him started on how casting a TV actor not a real actor, was the final insult to his screenplay masterpiece. She then pointed to a young woman sitting under the shade of an umbrella across the set from us. The woman, a long-legged, busty blonde, was wearing a skimpy sundress and oversized sunglasses. She was sipping a cola and reading a gossip magazine with a highlighter pen, stopping from time to time to mark a particular segment. Then there's Noelle, the writer's ex-girlfriend and the female lead, Lauren continued, her dislike evident in her cold tone. Casting couch stories in Hollywood are exaggerated, but I know for a fact she got cast because of her umlauts. Took me a moment to understand the reference, but as Noelle sat up and adjusted the straps on her dress, I understood Lauren's meaning. She got noticed by the producers because she was sleeping with the writer. But as soon as she got the part, she switched beds and started sleeping with Arnold. She indicated an older, heavy-set balding man in slacks and a Hawaiian shirt. He was also speaking heatedly into his cell phone. That's Arnold. He and Donna, the other producer, are divorced but are producing together, which in itself is a trip and a half. They'd make Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf look like a fluffy romantic comedy. I'm surprised they haven't killed each other yet. I looked at Arnold angrily speaking into his phone on one side of the set, and then at Donna talking just as furiously into her phone on the other side. Unless I was mistaken, it looked very much like they were in a highly contentious conversation with each other via cell phone, while standing 50 yards apart. Anyway, Lauren continued, then Noel dumped Arnold and is now shacked up with Walter, the director. I glanced around at the people Lauren had pointed out to me. The angry writer, the psycho director, the warring producers, and the sex kitten actress. So is this a typical movie set? I asked. I mean, where everyone hates each other? Lauren laughed. Honey, there's no such thing as a typical movie set. Each one is screwed up in its own special way. But this one is one of the worst I've seen. I wouldn't be surprised if someone ends up murdered before we get to the last scene. Not hearing a response from me, she turned and saw what I'm guessing was a horrified look on my face. Don't worry, baby. I'm just exaggerating for a fact. In Hollywood... No one actually kills anyone because of a movie. They don't? I asked, feeling relieved. No. They want to keep you alive so they can really take their time torturing you. That's the Hollywood way. So the whole movie is being shot on what is essentially the Renaissance Festival Grounds out in Shakopee, Minnesota. And that's how you know that I'm from here because I say Shakopee. Rather than Shakopee, which yeah. is when it's Weird. recorded out of town, that's what we hear. Yes. Um, I am curious if you know, since I did virtually no research for this portion of the book, except having been at the Renaissance Festival a few times and walked the grounds. Do you know if other people have shot movies out there? You know, I know Renaissance Festival grounds have been used uh, in the past. I know it's been used for commercial shoots, but I have no real, I don't think it's ever been used as a movie set. 
That's yeah. too bad. It's uh, a lovely, a lovely location. It is. So that wraps up chapter seven. Next week, we're going to continue with our magic consultant theme by uh, chatting with the one, the only Michael Close. Boy, oh boy. He is the man. He's so knowledgeable about magic. He's one of those guys, John, that when, when we talk about what, what should we ask him? Well, we could ask him anything. Yeah. Uh, He's just has, he's got a big swath uh, that he could cover. Um, but we talk specifically about uh, how foolish works, the parts of foolish that we as an audience don't get to see, but that the magicians who are um, appearing on foolish, the intricacies of what they have to go through in order to get through and in and then honed and then on stage it's fascinating and he's the man that sort of oversees all of that yeah he has really, really great insight into what it takes to get on fool us uh, on that stage what it takes to succeed although success doesn't necessarily mean fooling them and and uh, that's something people come to the conclusion of over the years they've come they've sort of come to realize that uh, you don't necessarily need to fool them to to, to have a great appearance Good. John Armstrong, perfect example of that. Exactly. Uh, we have, uh, he didn't fool him, but Penn says, this is the greatest card trick I've ever seen. Even though I know how it works, it's still the greatest card trick I've ever seen. That that gets you some work right there. That 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 little segment gets you some work. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. So, so right. uh, that'll be next episode. A great chat with Michael Close. Uh, I think you should subscribe, folks. You don't want to miss any of this. Not a second of this incredible podcast. You get all that, plus you're getting our bonus video that we mentioned earlier. Uh, you can check the show notes for the YouTube page where you get to see John Armstrong's recollections of his appearance on Fool Us. And while you're on our YouTube page, because I've just started putting all kinds of other stuff up there, I put up a bunch of the movies that I've made, and you can see Jim's movie debut in a little movie called Grown Men. Yes. Which was one of the best days of shooting. That uh, was a that was a lot of fun. Yes. But anyway, you can see Jim in Grown Men, or he also uh, has a scene as a porn producer in The Cookie Project. I'm sorry, uh, as a what? A porn producer. It's a funny just, little scene. It's just acting, folks. It's just, it's just acting. acting. Actors do a lot of different things. On anyway, this particular day, I'm a porn producer. Check that out. Otherwise, subscribe, rate us. You know all that stuff. And we'll see you next time when, uh, uh, in episode 208 when we talk to the one, the only Michael Close. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.